Now let's open our Bibles once again to the book of Ephesians. We are working our way through the book of Ephesians, Lord's Day by Lord's Day. You'll recall that the first three chapters really are fundamentally doctrine, and then chapters four through six are fundamentally the application of the doctrine of the first three chapters. Now, if you're new here, let me emphasize that the approach to preaching is expository. That is, we take a book of the Bible, we work through it ordinarily, we take a text, and we work through the text. And so you'll need the Bible open before you during the entirety of the sermon. The minister's not here to proclaim his own views. He's here to expound the text. The authority is in the Word of God, in the Bible. It's not in the minister. It's in the Bible. And so it's his obligation to expound the text to the gathered people of God. Ephesians 4, 17 through 24. Will you pray with me before we read this portion of God's Word? Our gracious God, we have just sung praise to your triune revelation that you are one God in three persons, that you are eternally one God in three persons, that there are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. And so we ask that, Father, as you have loved a people from eternity past, as you, the Son, have died for those people and have been raised from the dead for those people, and now as the blessed Holy Spirit applies the gospel to those loved of the Father from eternity for whom the Son died and gave his life, we pray that even now the Word of God will find hearts and consciences that those among us who may not know you would be saved from sin, that your people will be upbuilt in the most holy faith. And so now we turn to your word, and we ask that you will bless its exposition, help us to focus upon the word, and help us to take everything we can from it for our Christian living. We ask the blessed work of the Spirit of God now to illumine the page that has been divinely inspired. In Jesus' name, amen. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning with verse 17. This is the word of God. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart, They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds." And to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Now the theme of this passage is the new walk. And when the Apostle Paul uses the term walk, he means our manner of life. Notice that in chapter 4 verse 17 he says, Now this I say and testify on the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. In chapter 5, verse 2, he says, and walk in love. In verse 8 of chapter 5, 
For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. In verse 15 of the fifth chapter, he says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. And of course, back in chapter 2 of Ephesians, in the very first verse, he says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, but now you walk differently because you come down to verse 10 of chapter 2, and he says, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So the Apostle Paul in this section is concerned that we Christians live a certain way that comes from the heart, that we live, that we walk in a certain way in this world. And the entirety of what we will see in the remainder of Ephesians is how we are to walk as believers in Christ. Remember that Paul has told us that we are saints and elect and redeemed and sealed with the Spirit. And now he says, live that way. It matters how you live as a professing Christian. Paul has dwelt upon the indicatives, what Christ has done, and now he is going to stress the imperatives, how the Lord expects you and I to live in light of what Christ has done for us. If we are truly redeemed, then increasingly we will walk after newness of life. Now, as we examine the text that is before us, I want to start with Genesis, and that's the reading that was given to us this morning from Genesis 1 in particular. What I'm trying to say to you is, and this is the first thing, creation and fall, creation and fall, these are the truths, the backdrop for what Paul has said in these verses that we have read this morning. You can see that clearly if you look at verses 23 and 24 to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And so Paul has Genesis in the backdrop in his mind. Man was created as God's image bearer. In Genesis 1 we read, let us make man in our image, in the image of God he created them. That man was created as God's image particularly relates to the knowledge that he had of God, to his moral uprightness and to his holiness. But then man rebelled as we read in Genesis 3. Man is fallen. In our rebellion against God we are not sinning passively but actively. We are by nature in active rebellion against God. Rather than staying on the Queen Mary we have jumped off to our death. We haven't followed the map that God gave us for our prosperity and our happiness. And so Paul describes the unbeliever in this passage in these terms. Futile, dark, estranged, hard, and lustful. This is the Christian doctrine of original sin that we need to be teaching our children. And you very rarely hear from pulpits nowadays. The hereditary depravity and the corruption of our whole nature. As the canons of Dort put it, the posterity of Adam has derived corruption from their original parent, that's Adam, by the propagation of a vicious nature. Man's will is now bound in sin. There is no free will. Our will is bound in sin. As we read in Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And Paul in chapter 2 of Ephesians, you will recall, describes fallen man as spiritually dead 
conformed to the vile practices of this age, enslaved to Satan, to sin, and under God's wrath. But then he speaks of God's mercy and love and the spiritual resurrection brought about in our lives by God's mercy because the gospel comes to dead sinners and brings them to life. Because the gospel transforms sinners, so much so that Paul sees it as a renewal of the image that was lost by man in the fall in the Garden of Eden. And that's the point when he speaks of renewal and recreation in these latter verses in chapter 4 in the text we read. He is saying that what Christ does is to come into this world to save sinners from sin and to recreate after God's image the image that has been lost. Now that's a wonderful thing. Now that's the backdrop going all the way back to Genesis that Paul has in his mind. And when we think of man, the first thing that we think should not be sinner. I wonder when you think of man, is the first thing you think of man is a sinner? Well, it shouldn't be the first thing. We should think of man in his uprightness before the fall, walking in fellowship with God. We now see man in sin, but sin is abnormal. You know, you, you recall how often we hear, to sin is human. Well, it's not. It is not human to sin. It is abnormal. It is contrary to everything that it means to be human. Sin dehumanizes. Sin is destructive of what it means to be human. It is contrary to everything that Adam was created to be. And so that's what Paul has in the backdrop, the glorious truth that man now fallen in sin is recreated in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness by the Lord Jesus who has come to save us sinners from our awful sins. So moving on into the text more explicitly, the second thing we see is that the Apostle Paul says, this is who you were. So that's the second thing, what you were outside of Christ. And he says in verse 17, this I say and testify on the Lord. And with apostolic authority, he begins to stress in these points what we were like outside of Christ. And he says in verse 17, if you'll just follow along, you'll see it. The first thing I want you to know about man's fallenness is that man was lost in the futility of their thinking. The futility of their thinking. Now this is what the book of Ecclesiastes calls striving after wind. I had a couple of friends that grew up in the sand, uh, sandy parts of Texas. Well, where isn't it sandy in Texas, but the desert in Texas. And they used to play on the playground when they were boys, and the wind would come up and it would stir up the wind and they would, they would chase dust devils. But of course when they caught the dust devil, it was just a handful of sand. It was empty. It was vain. It was nothing. Well, all outside of Christ is futile. The word carries with it the idea of being aimless. That's the unbeliever. He's aimless. The goal of God's glory is entirely missed in the unbeliever's life, as it was in mine when I was unconverted and in yours. Instead, there is selfishness and idolatry. So, the futility of their thinking. But then he goes on in verse 18 to speak of the darkening of the understanding, darkened in their understanding. You see it? Verse 18. The problem with the unbeliever is not that he simply doesn't have the facts. The problem isn't that he just needs more education and then everything would be all right. The abundantly clear revelation of God stares the sinner in the face. 
is in fact a part of his own being. God's revelation is a part of his own being. Yet sinners suppress God's truth, which he knows to be true because he is God's image, though now the shattered image of God. The natural man cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are spiritually discerned. His knowledge of God is dismal and idolatrous. And only the Holy Spirit can create a clean heart and enlighten the mind. Well, look at the text in verse 18, and you'll see that he goes on to say that the natural man, the sinner outside of Christ, is alienated from the life of God. What does that mean? But that sinners have no fellowship with God. Isaiah 59, 2, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and in the ultimate sense for those who are out of Christ, so that the alienation will be permanent for those who do not believe the gospel. Now, you know the New Testament was written in Greek, in the Greek New Testament. This is a perfect tense, which means a continual state of existence. This will be the continual state of existence if God does not intervene by grace, that the sinner is alienated from the life of God. In verse 18, we continue to see the state of the natural man. It says, because of the ignorance that is in them. Now again, Paul is not saying that the sinner's problem is just lack of education. Man's ignorance is sinful ignorance. Man wants to be without the knowledge of God. He can't escape it, but he suppresses it. Romans 1.18 tells us that the sinner is a truth suppressor. Sinful man is a truth suppressor. Sinful man cannot see the light of the gospel unaided. And then again, going on in verse 18, he says, Their ignorance, that is that sinful ignorance, is due to the hardness of their hearts. The hardness of their hearts. So that he goes on to say that they are callous. Abbott translates that their past feeling. It is possible for a sinner in his sin to go so far and so deep within sin that he becomes past feeling callous in his sin. Because of this, sinners are estranged from God, and they have a lust for impurity, he says. Pleonexia means greed, covetousness. They're greedy. They desire sin. They want more and more of it. The picture here is the sinner who has gone so far in sin that he's out of control with an insatiable craving Sinful man loves his sin and craves his sin. He will love the very thing that kills him. He would rather have sin than salvation. He would rather have his sin than fellowship with God. He would rather be damned for eternity than to part with his sin. And had we time, I I commend to you going back and reading Romans 1.18 through the end of Romans 1. Three times God says of the sinner, God gave them over. God gave them over. God gave them over. A.T. Robertson said the words sound to us like the clods on the coffin as God leaves man to work their own wicked will. And in verse 24 of the first chapter of Romans You'll recall that the Apostle Paul says, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. 
Robertson adds, heathenism left its stamp on the bodies of men and women, just as it does today. Well, here in Ephesians 4, in verse 22, the apostle says that we are to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. So he adds to the list in that verse by telling us that we are corrupt, and it's a present tense, and the present tense means that it can continue to become more and more corrupt. It can grow. And the verse uses words for strong desire and deceit. This is the portrait of the man, the woman, the child, outside of Christ. Now someone says, well, I don't trust Christ and I don't do those things. I'm very moral. Let me say something to you. You don't know your own heart. You'll never know it until you see it in light of the holiness of God as the Holy Spirit opens the heart. You have no basis for your morality because that requires an absolute standard and you've rejected the absolute standard. It is only because of God's restraint that you do not live this way to the full. Some men's sins, you know, are splendid sins. They don't show, for example, in sexual immorality. They show in self-righteousness that looks good in the eyes of man, but if you knew yourself, you would see that your heart is a cesspool of iniquity. That's what my heart was like before coming to Christ. Moral, self-righteous, depraved, and lost. And I needed a Savior. So let's read these verses again, beginning in verse 17. Now I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Due to the hardening of their hearts, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And in verse 22, he says that this former manner of life is corrupt through deceitful desires. That's the sinner outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. Sinclair Ferguson points out the logical progression of Paul's thought. Hardness of heart leads to ignorance which involves being alienated from the life of God, which leads to our being darkened in our understanding with the result that we become callous and given up to sensuality and thus greedy to practice every kind of impurity. It starts with a hard heart. So beware of those times in which you say, I'll try anything once. It can't hurt me to get involved in that sin once. You're not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you're a sinner. You see the difference? The problem is the state of the human heart, which is hard against God and the gospel and can become more hard as it rejects the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then you see, you say, I'll try it once. The door is open and you think more of yourself than you do of the law of God. And over time, your conscience can be seared as with a hot iron so that your conscience doesn't even sense or feel it anymore. 
That's where things can lead. Now I want to make three observations here before we go on to the next point. The first observation is for my unbelieving friends who may be here today, whoever you may be. Spurgeon had this to say about his own heart before he came to know Jesus. The greatest abomination that ever existed physically is not to be compared with the moral abominations that dwell in the unrenewed heart. The heart is a miniature hell. It is pandemonium in embryo. You have but to let it grow, and the vileness which is in every human heart by nature would soon make a hell if there were no hell. But then he adds, And yet, my brethren, when we were loathed, when even our person was loathed, he loved us, and he showed his love, demonstrated it by sending his son to die on a cross, not for good people, but for people such as are described in this text this morning. The Christians in Ephesians who once lived this way, thought this way, and acted this way. Unbeliever, your darkened heart needs God's light. Your guilt needs God's forgiveness. And you need the only Redeemer of sinners, the Lord Jesus Christ. There is cleansing for you. There is cleansing for your heart. But only in one person. And that is in Jesus. The next thing I want to say as we think about these verses, the next observation, is that this passage should encourage the church in our evangelism of the lost. We look around and we have a tendency to say, never has the world been like this. The moral depravity is just too great. Not so. The moral and social conditions of the ancient world were not superior to our own day. The religious rights of the ancient world were unspeakably depraved, and there was the prevalence of slavery and the amphitheater. Roland Allen, in his great book on Paul's missionary methodology, says, Nothing was too gross, nothing too indecent to be displayed in the theater, nothing too sacred to be parodied there. Some of you are familiar with Augustine and his great confessions. You know, he was a pagan and how the Lord brought him to himself. When he was a professor teaching youth uh, the Manichaean false doctrine, when he was a professor, one of his students was Olypius, who imbibed all of his poison. Olypius went to Rome before Augustine did in order to further pursue his education. And Olypius had taken himself away from the amphitheater and the gladiatorial activities there. He no longer wanted to see them. Then he met some of his college buddies. And his college buddies said to him, oh, come on. And they swept him into the amphitheater. Along the way, he said, it won't matter. It will be as if I weren't there. I'll close my eyes to it. I'll pay no heed to it. I'll pay no attention to it. And then with the first kill of the gladiator, the crowd roaring for more, he opened his eyes and became as bloodthirsty as the rest. Augustine tells us, when he saw the blood, it was as though he had drunk a deep draught of savage passion, and then he couldn't stay away. He was a frequenter of the gladiatorial exhibitions. A continual lust for more? says Paul the Apostle, well, this was the world into which the gospel was first preached. This is the world into which the gospel of Jesus Christ came. That's the world in which the first Christians believed. It was vicious, and it was ugly, and it was depraved. 
And in 1 Peter, if you'll turn there, 1 Peter chapter 2. And 1 Peter is written about this sort of world and how Christians are to live in this sort of world. He tells us in 1 Peter 2, verses 11 and 12. 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now that's what Paul is saying here in Ephesians 4. He's saying, stay away from this evil. Your walk as a Christian should be different so that those seeing you can see what it means to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to make a third observation about this description of man's heart before we go on. And here I want to speak especially to you high school students and to college students, some of whom will be listening to the recording. Some of you parents may speak to your college students. Some of you who will soon go off to college, maybe next year. I want our youth to understand that the natural man cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God. You know, there are brilliant unbelievers. And there are brilliant believers. But that doesn't save the soul. The most brilliant, unbelieving professor that you will have in college. And you will be attracted to his teaching, undoubtedly. I'm talking about his worldview. The most brilliant, unbelieving professor that you have in college is a total spiritual ignoramus without Christ. I really mean that. Remember, he doesn't care a thing in the world about God's Word. Everything he says is from human autonomy, what he thinks is right, or what he thinks is good, or what he thinks is acceptable, or what he thinks people should think. He doesn't know who God is. He doesn't know who man is. He doesn't know why God created the world. He doesn't know why man is here. He doesn't know that we're fallen sinners, or at least he suppresses that truth. He doesn't know what it means to be redeemed. And so I don't care how well he can tell you what fusion and fission is, or how well he can open a, a, a book of, Brit of British literature for you. His worldview is depraved, and that's true of every one of us before we come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And I really do mean it when I say that you and that professor don't even see the same world. You remember Van Til's story about the two farmers? All right, we have two farmers. Some of you don't remember. We have two farmers. They both have adjoining farms. They're looking out their picture windows. They get up early because there's a lot of work to do on the farm. And they're looking out their picture windows and the sun is beginning to rise and they're both drinking their coffee. The believer over here looks out the picture window and he says, oh, what a beautiful morning it is. He takes a sip of his coffee. What a beautiful, beautiful, look, I see my red cows eating green grass, giving white milk. Isn't God the creator just wonderful? The unbelieving farmer is looking through his picture window and he takes a sip of his coffee and he says, oh my, what a beautiful day it is. And look, I see my red cow eating green grass and giving white milk. 
Isn't the ultimacy of chance astounding? Now, I'm not saying the believer and unbeliever are always totally consistent with themselves. Would that we were more consistent and we're thankful when the unbeliever lives on borrowed capital and isn't fully consistent with himself, but that's the consistent position. Epistemologically speaking, that is how we know what we know, the believer and the unbeliever do not even see the same world. So the old illustration really is applicable. You take the sum of two and two, and the believer and the unbeliever will both come up with four. I'm not saying that the unbeliever can't think logically. Sometimes he can think more logically than you can. I didn't say that he wasn't brilliant and couldn't work with equations. He can work with equations that perhaps you can't work with. The question is not... 2 plus 2 equals 4. The question is why? 2 plus 2 equals 4, either because of the ultimacy of chance or because it reflects rationality in the mind of God. So that even down to the realm of numerical relations, this antithesis between how the believer sees the world and how the unbeliever sees the world, even down to 2 plus 2, 4, we don't see the same world. Do you see? When Paul describes the unbelieving heart, and then he describes the believing heart, we don't even see the same universe. Well, let's go on. The third thing to see here, the image restored who you are, and I can only touch on it today. We'll have to pick it up next time. But having shown what we are by nature, Paul now turns to who we are in Christ, and he says in verse 22, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. See, he says, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, which is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Well, that's quite a difference from the description he's given of the unbeliever, isn't it? The old man has been put off. It's a change of clothes metaphor. You have taken off the old, you have put on the new. It's what we read in Romans 6. Those of you who have been here on Sunday nights will remember. The Apostle Paul says the old self is crucified with Christ. There has been a definitive breach with sin's mastery, and therefore we are no longer enslaved to sin. We are dead in Christ and raised to newness of life. John Stott puts it this way, that there is the biography that is written in two volumes. Volume 1 is the story of your old life before conversion. That's the old self, the old man. Volume 2 is the story of the new man made new in Christ. My old life having finished, a new life has begun. So God has shut the volume to the old man, and now he has opened the volume to your new life, new in Christ. And the new man has been put on, we are told in verses 23 and 24. But can't you see that Paul's fundamental fundamental concern in this passage is the whole idea of creation and recreation. Creation, fall, redemption, consummation, recreation. We are recreated in Christ. 
Just turn over a few pages to the third chapter of Colossians. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 9, he uses similar language. Put off, put on language, he says in verse 8 of Colossians 3. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing, verse 9, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Actually, it's kinekatesis, new creation. It means you belong to the world that is to come if you are in Christ. And that determines how you live. So again, to reference Dr. Ventil, the buzzsaw has been reset. Before coming to Christ, the buzzsaw of your mind was set in this fashion, and whatever data was fed into the buzzsaw would be cut in that way. Remarkable thing happens when the Holy Spirit changes a heart. The buzzsaw is reset, and we begin to cut the data in a way that glorifies God. The buzzsaw of your minds have been reset by the powerful work of the Holy Spirit. Which leads me to comment briefly on the new walk. That's the fourth thing, the new walk. That's Paul's point in this passage. He says in verse 17, now I say and testify in the Lord you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Then he goes on to describe the putting off and putting on and how we are to walk. A new walk, a new manner of life, one that is free, one that is free, one that is clean, one that is God-honoring. And he says, this is something we learn. Did you notice that in verses 20 and 21? But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. It must be taught from the scriptures, and moral transformation into God's image matures over your whole life, not reaching perfection until you go to heaven and for your body and the resurrection in the last day. The day is coming in which the new man that you are in Christ will be morally perfect and totally conformed to the image of Christ when you go to heaven and in the coming of Christ when your body is raised. Complete moral perfection. You know, I said to a brother just this week, I wish I didn't sin. I wish I had no desire to sin. But then I guess I'm wishing to be dead. That is to say, I do long for heaven, and I do long for the coming of Christ. And don't you think it's a marvelous thing that one day your heart will be completely free from sin? So, looking ahead, the following parts of Ephesians will tell us how this new walk looks. What will we see in Ephesians? It will tell us how we are to treat one another. It will tell us how we speak to one another. How are you speaking to one another in your home? It will tell us how this new walk teaches us to avoid sexual immorality. Anyone here, you're, you're, you're just head over heels into sexual immorality. You're deep into pornography. How we are to live in our marriages. How we are to live with our children. 
Even how we are to do battle with principalities and powers. A new walk once in one direction that led to hell, hell, but now you are new in Christ and there is a new walk in a new direction that leads to heaven, which is true of you. And it will show in practical ways. Let me say this is not theoretical. It will show in practical ways. I read one old preacher who gave an illustration. A man stood up in a Christian meeting and he said, I'm standing on Christ on redemption ground. A man got up and said, I want to challenge that. He's standing in shoes he bought from me six months ago and is not paid for. (laughs) Point? Righteous living will show in the heart and in the life of the man who really is new in Christ. To put it another way, in the fall we lost knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. Now that we are raised with Christ, we are renewed and are being restored to knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. Therefore, says Paul, be who you are in Christ. Let knowledge, righteousness, and holiness show more and more in your lives. And the word renew in verse 23 is a present tense that means progressively more and more and more be renewed in your minds. So, fifth point. To what does this text this morning call us? Let me give you several things to which it calls you and me as believers in Jesus. To what does the text call us? Number one, the call to put off and put on to this pattern of life. Since the old man has been put off, then put on things consistent with the new person that you are in Christ. So it calls us, secondly, to daily conversion There is a call here to continue to be renewed, a call to daily conversion. I'm concerned that in some of our circles today there's little calling of repentance in the Christian life. No place for commands and no place for imperatives, and that's so wrong. At a recent youth gathering in a PCA-sponsored event, a PCA minister said to the youth, The Lord is as pleased with you when you are in your closet viewing pornography as when you are sitting in church on Sunday morning. That's a lie. And it's deadly. Yes, justified sinners are not condemned and are completely judicially accepted at the the throne. But the Lord is displeased with genuine Christians who set aside God's word, and there is such a thing as fatherly displeasure. So as we move on in Ephesians, have a heart to please the Lord and to grow. As Hendrickson put it, basic conversion must be followed by daily conversion. Third thing to which this text calls us is to mind renewal. Again, verse... 23, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Again, it's a present, present tense. Keep on being renewed. Systematically fill your mind with Scripture. Have within your heart the, the heart of Jeremiah, who said in Jeremiah fifteen sixteen, Your words were found, and I ate them, and your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. Systematically feed the Word of God to your heart. Be under word and sacrament. 
Because the mind is the battleground. It really is. Thomas Watson the Puritan says, He who is drunk with the love of the world is never free from temptation. And I have never known, and will never know, a strong Christian apart from the word that is preached, the sacraments, and the fellowship of the people of God. Fourthly, the text is a call to repudiate the old and to live out of the new. That we actually have to learn to say no, and we have to learn to say yes. Turn to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. In Titus 2, verses 11 and 12, Paul the Apostle says, You there? Titus 2, 11 and 12. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Look at it again. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. We are taught to say no to the world in its direction, and to say yes to the new life that has been granted us in Christ. Do not live like unsaved and worldly people who are alienated from God. Don't store the gasoline next to the fireplace. Fifthly, do not, this text calls us, it is a call not to dialogue with sin. You'll lose every time. John Owen the Puritan said, it will lay the reins on the neck of lust. Dialogue will. It will rain, lay the rein on the neck of lust and put spurs in the side of it that it may rush forward like a horse into battle. We would say it this way. You dialogue with sin, it will put the pedal to the metal. Rather the text calls us to, sixthly, There here is a call to love those things that are consistent with God's nature and a call to hate those things that are inconsistent with God's nature. Where did I get this? Recreation in God's image. If we are being recreated after the image and likeness of the God who created us originally and we fell from that image, if we are being recreated then we are recreated to reflect that image and to love those things that are consistent with His attributes and to hate those things that are inconsistent with His attributes. To love those things that are consistent with the new nature. To put it another way, knowing who we are in Christ should produce a horror of sin and increasingly a love for righteousness. And with this I close. I really do. Anselm of Canterbury made this statement and oh how I want this to be my life do you? He said this if sin were on one side and hell 
on the other. I would rather leap into hell than sin against my God. God's people said, Amen.